2: Hi, Science Rules listeners. Bill Nye here. Season two of Science Rules, it's hard to believe, season two is coming to an end. But don't get too worried because season three of Science Rules will be here before you know it. So next season, we'll be talking to more amazing experts about all sorts of things, memory, space exploration, and of course, cephalopods. So stay tuned. Science Rules returns January 30th. on hello?
3: hello we're all science people
4: science! exactly we know it's a good idea because it's lasted we can teach kids and they get it
3: there's chemistry in here there's biology in here
4: it's in whiskey it's in ice cream it's in who you fall in love with
2: that's the recipe for success we can make the world better for everybody
0: starting now
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, so if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, the number to dial is 470-ASK-BILL. That's 470-275-2455-ASK-BILL. Hope to hear from you. Make sure to check my social handles, you know, the electronic uh, internet machine the kids use. And as always, send us your questions and comments to askbillnye.com, com. And once again, I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Aww. Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Uh, it's
5: great to be here. So, you know, Bill, I, I try to be a good person. I really do.
2: I'm open-minded, but a little skeptical.
5: Well, <laughs> kidding aside, uh, you know, I, I look to you for guidance about how to make the world a better place, how to, how to do change for the good. And part of what I love about the show is what I might call the practical ethics of it.
2: The world is changing. And the question might be, do we need a different style of ethics than got us this far? So today we are joined by bioethicist and author, Dr. Travis Reeder. Doctor, welcome to Science Rules.
6: Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here.
2: It's good to see you. It's good to see you again. So uh we were we were Netflixing we were. back we were in were the Netflixing. Saves the World yeah. Days. But we're talking today about I'm serious, man. We're talking today about something big. We got when I was a kid, there were fewer than three billion people in the world. Now they're 7.8, they're gonna be eight and then nine and probably ten billion people. And this is gonna make This is gonna make for some challenges. So what's the difference between ethics and bioethics?
6: I tend to think there's not a whole lot that's special about the bio and bioethics. So, the, the kind of uh, standard line is it's the ethics of science and medicine and healthcare systems and biological organisms. Um, but then we have to ask things like so are animals included? So they're biological. So it's not just human healthcare. What about the environment? Well, trees are biological. And at this point, it sounds like we've kind of started including everything that we're interested it's in. It's not
2: bad. Yeah,
6: exactly. So, bioethics, practical ethics. I tend to think of myself as just someone who wants to do ethics in the real world with real people. One of the first arguments that I engaged with in the philosophical literature was about whether we should procreate in the era of climate change.
2: I mean, should you stop having kids because the climate is changing? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, Doc. <laughs> people like having ki- – they like uh, interacting. But all that aside, uh, should you stop having kids? And the answer is –
6: uh, I mean, I try to come to a pretty nuanced view, but I, I say we definitely ought to take all these new facts into consideration. There are really good reasons to not have children if you're not really invested in it, if it doesn't constitute a central value. If it does, maybe you ought to have one and then stop and think about whether you really need more because there's kind of diminishing you returns. you get a puppy. <laughs> you
2: is there something about your reasoning that's unique? This is to say, is there something about bioethics in this regard that's different from what an actuary, some guy, somebody at an insurance company could just come up with by looking at a couple columns of numbers.
6: Yeah. So what I think an ethicist brings to the table, what I think I bring to the table in conversations like this is being able to think through systematically and rigorously about the various moral and value-related re- concepts. So values and justice and rights and harms and benefits, these are really hard things to think through, right? Um, and so there are some people who have trained their whole life to think through them. And so when it comes to procreative ethics, this field about you know whether we should have children if there are restrictions on how many we should have, the ways we should have them, um, I, I talk a lot more in my work than just about, you know hey, kids contribute to climate change. The thing I'm actually most interested in is that there are all sorts of really good moral reasons that bear on the decision to have a child, whether to do it or not, and we largely don't talk about those. For examples. For example. So one of the things that I think about is um, you can think about kind of outward-facing reasons and inward-facing reasons. And I know that sounds techno-jargony, so let me spell it well, out.
2: just go for
6: it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so the outward-facing considerations are like the ones we've been talking about. My kid will become a consumer and a producer. She will emit greenhouse gases. Because she's my kid and lives in the United States and I'm a comfortable person, she'll be even worse than normal, right? Mm-hmm. She'll be a high emitter. So these are like altruistic reasons not to impose my kid on the world, right? Got it. Mm-hmm. But now there's also all sorts of good reasons not to impose the world on my kid, right? So think about the same context, climate change. I had my daughter in 2014. There is not a day that goes by that I don't think about the fact that as a father, I should want her to live to see 2100. I should want her to have a nice long life. And in 2100, we might be at four or five degrees Celsius uh, temperature rise over pre-industrial times. And Delaware is
2: underwater. Yeah, yeah it'll be Norfolk catastrophic. Norfolk is pretty much gone. I don't want... Let alone Bangladesh and, <gasps> and Portsmouth and what have you.
6: Yeah, so I don't want the person who I will predictably love the most in the world. So if I'm, if I'm trying to think about this before I have a kid, the person who I will predictably love the most in the world, I don't want to expose them to this really terrible kind of <laughs> apocalyptic sounding Yeah, thanks, world. Dad. But, but, but wait,
5: but then... If you have one child or two children, are, are you thinking, well, each child is going to maybe have a miserable life in a hot world. So how many people do I want to expose to a, a,
6: a horrible world? That's a that's a strange kind of calculus. Well, so there are different so – these reasons count in different ways, right? So if you're thinking about these outward-facing altruistic reasons, uh, there's more than just the climate change. So I also have to spend lots of money on my daughters. That's money I'm not giving to charity and other sorts of things, right? Um, and the inward-facing reasons, the, the kind of reasons to protect my child – Not having them.
2: So so I appreciate your thoughtful thankfulness with respect to thinking about this philosophically, but people have kids for deep, deep evolutionary reasons. Uh, The selfish gene is in a shorthand that genes uh, exist so that they pass themselves on to future generations of genes. So people are going to have kids, aren't they?
6: Well, so this is, this is what ethics brings. You said, what, did, what do bioethicists bring yeah, to the table? Yeah, I'm jamming here. Yeah, this is it, man. Um, so ethicists say just because this is the way people work doesn't mean it's the way people should work.
2: So there's some laws that you'd recommend passing.
6: Uh, There are some laws that I think are probably justified uh, to at least investigate, yeah. So some of the sorts of things that we could do is change tax incentive structures. So in the U.S., a story that I've, I've told before, so when I had my child, this was 2014, my partner and I were both postdocs. Uh, we were very comfortable by any reasonable standard, but postdocs don't make a lot of money by kind of exorbitant American standards. And so one of the things that really shocked me was that first year we were able to claim the child tax credit. And so the government was providing us this good because we now have a child to take care of. Now, ostensibly, the argument here is that children shouldn't kind of pay for their parents' procreative choices. And so if, if you need money to help your child you know, get along, this is what it does. But I went and looked at it when I was shocked that we got it because we were comfortable. And it doesn't phase out until well over $100,000 a year for a married couple. I think it was at the time $109,000 to $119,000 a year. So, But how th-
2: much money is the tax break?
6: Uh, It's like three thousand dollars. Yeah, I I mean, two two or three thousand, something like that.
2: That'll keep you in Pampers, I guess.
6: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, But that's a that's a bad incentive structure if we're actually trying to think that you know having more children just for the sake of having more children at a kind of high level policy decision isn't great. And instead, we might have good reasons to protect resources and have a smaller population. Well, we would want to change the incentive structure so that if we were sure your kids weren't going to pay for it, so that's one concern. We wouldn't want to pay. Parents who then have another child, so that it becomes part of their calculus, and we might actually start penalizing parents who have more children. So that's th- the thing that I said on your show that people really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you might actually have a start uh, start to have a, a scale up of tax penalties for the more children you have. And this would be a model of something like uh, an environmental or a carbon tax on the fact that you brought in another mouth to feed and somebody who's gonna be an emitter for the rest of their lives. How
2: about taking some calls?
6: I think we should take some calls. Because
2: I'm looking at the call list here. This looks like a, uh, this will be big fun. Uh, Kayla, Kayla, are you out there? Hello. Kayla, where are you calling from?
4: Um, South Louisiana.
2: All right. Welcome What's to- the difference between Louisiana and South Louisiana? One's in the
4: south. Uh, a, a lot, actually. <laughs> no, I mean,
2: is one, are you in New Orleans?
4: Um, no, I'm actually more southern than that. I'm about an hour south.
2: Wait, are you
5: are you actually in the water This <laughs> as we're talking to you?
2: <laughs> are you on the Texas side?
4: Uh, that's so funny. That's so funny that you say that. A lot of people think that we're in a marsh area, but no, that's actually
2: both. (laughs) So go ahead. You have a question. All that um, uh, 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 geography aside, you have a good question. Take it, Kayla. All right. Um,
4: So one, I have to ask you, is, Am I really talking to Bill Nye?
5: Yeah, I think so, yes. I, I'm I'm sitting right here, and he sure looks <laughs> like I'm, Bill Nye. I'm, I'm a witness, yeah. 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 So
2: there's two other guys amazing. here.
5: Uh, I see his lips moving, and as the voice is coming out, so I'm pretty sure that is Ooh. Bill Nye.
2: So, Kayla, Kayla I'm, I'm here for you, uh, my esteemed colleague. What is your question?
4: My question is, um, so I have a lot of friends that I love so dearly who recycle and... Personally, I would love to get into it, but I'm seeing more and more in social media things that they really, they pull me to lean towards that. I don't think that it would actually make an impact if I were to pursue in this and actually start recycling things like glass, plastics, like everything that's, you know, recyclable.
2: (laughs) So you don't recycle right now. Because you feel no, that it's okay. just too small in effect. Your, your, your effort would hardly change things.
4: Yes, especially down here. Down here, it's so hard to recycle. Um, I think the easiest place that it would be for me to recycle, I used to be a student at a college called Nichols State University, and they made it very easy for me to start, you know, getting more it's, involved.
2: In other words, recycling, uh, recycling now, is a hassle.
5: It's like you. using a teaspoon to drain a swamp, as they say.
4: Yeah, they make it a hassle down here and other things as well as like going vegan and other things. Like, I really just want to know what I can do personally that will actually do something.
2: Uh, so I always say the big thing we could all do is talk about it. If we were talking about climate change and the environment, we'd be doing something about it. And along with that, I always say please vote. But vote. that's not vote. why that's not why we had Dr. Reeder on. Doctor Reeder, what do you have to say about uh, to Kayla in this regard?
6: Yeah, well I mean the the, <laughs> the self serving answer given the research topic we started with is, you know, when you actually look at the data, the most impactful thing you can do is have one fewer child. It absolutely swamps everything else. So there's a study that came out well, that showed I, this. I, I'm
4: sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No,
6: go ahead. I said
4: um I heard you guys talking about having not having children earlier and i thought that was so crazy because we were just talking about that the other day like i mean what what good would it to bring a child into this world at this point like that's just my point of view like i just don't feel i don't feel safe about
2: it so kayla when i was growing up in the vietnam era and fear of nuclear weapons nuclear war and, uh, and and in those days, I went to the first Earth Day in 1970. Everybody thought the world was so polluted we'd never get out of this world alive and so on. And my friends and colleagues were saying exactly the same thing. Don't have kids. Kids, are, the world they're coming into is so screwed up and such a mess. And this, we didn't even have the internet. We didn't even have social media to help <laughs> us feel bad about everything. <laughs> And but, so but then, wow, the, I didn't but, realize
4: it was such a big thing back then. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. wow. right, but, also, is,
5: but then, one of the things that came out of that first Earth Day was it led to the, uh, or it helped instigate the, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, into it was a good, The Clean it was, Water Act. The the protests the were, Act.
2: Uh, in a sense, effective. Yeah. But if I understand this, Kayla, you guys are talking about this, and this is the very thing you, by, by you guys, I'm talking about you and your friends, right? Yeah. We're talking about not having kids because the world is such a flipping mess. Why bring why impose that on a kid, right? Yeah, something like that. And that's the inward looking, um, yeah, inward looking thing that you, Dr. Reeder, were talking about. But objectively, you're saying, Dr. Reeder, to me and to Kayla, maybe even to Corey, maybe. Uh, possibly, uh, that objectively, the biggest thing you could do to make a difference in the environment or climate change is to not have another kid.
6: Yeah, so this study that came out, uh, this was uh, like 2008, I think now, um, but it's been reprinted in lots of other areas, uh, basically showed that if you make some assumptions about responsibility, and so you say, you know, I and my partner have some responsibility for the emissions of my kid and a dwindling responsibility for the emissions for their kids and so on and so on. um, So pretty plausible assumptions. Then... Um, then basically you add that up, you run the calculus, and it turns out that the most impactful thing that you do with reference to the environment is to have a child. So the one thing that if you're thinking like, what's the the big thing I could do? Yeah, I mean, you hit on some of the big ones. Going vegan would matter, right, relative to the ability that you have to contribute. Um, The one that's between these, between not having another kid or a kid and you know, cutting meat out of your diet or animal proteins is um, driving and flying, right? So fly less, especially across oceans, and um, drive less, which of course requires infrastructure, which is easier or harder in different places. But all that to say, those are just ways to not directly contribute. And we've already been talking about, um, look, your own contribution is infinitesimal, right? We're talking about the problematic amount of greenhouse gases in the trillions of tons And you're talking about emitting, you know, single metric tons or fractions of that. And so another thing you could do is think, well, look, my life in southern Louisiana, is Mm -hmm. that where we are? My life in southern Louisiana is not super conducive to being a vegan, I'll do my best and I'll do it where I can. I'll try to spread the message by having conversations and having it loudly and voting, et cetera. But then also, some of the energy that I'm taking that I would have spent on more expensive products, um, I will take and send to 350.org or other organizations, right? And so I'm using my resources and directing them in different ways. And there's no rule against that in morality, right? There's no rule that says you can't try to like swap impacts. So if some things are harder and some things are easier, do the things that are easier, you're still doing something. Kayla, you've just
2: I do inspirational.
6: Like that. You you brought us home just the way I hoped you would. Thank I'm, you, Kayla.
2: Oh, thank you, Kayla. Carry on. Now, one <laughs> thing you. I I will thank say you. about having kids: what is what is my favorite thing? Really, Corey?
5: Uh, Bill Nye. Oh, no, oh, uh, oh, sure. uh, evolution.
2: Evolution <laughs> is yes. my favorite yes. thing. Yes. So people are going to have kids. The reason we're all here is to make more us. Uh, from an evolutionary standpoint. You're not going to meet an organism that says, I'm not going to reproduce. And so people are going to reproduce. But if I understand this, Dr. Reeder, your argument is there are reasonable ways of managing your reproductive tendencies. Is that accurate? Yeah. And they're ethical
6: yeah totally. and And if you say, you know, the reason we're here is because we make babies, that isn't a moral reason. That's a causal explanation. And causal explanations don't always give you moral reasons, right? So sure, the reason we're here is because people were programmed to make babies. That does not mean that you are obligated, you should or it's even that it's not wrong to make more babies, right? Ethics comes apart from these uh, explanations. So there are moral reasons, and these aren't always the exp- explanatory reasons.
2: okay, but hold aren't don't morals come from us? Don't we make up morals?
6: (laughs) Oh, well, that totally depends. Now we're doing meta-ethics. That's another. you got to get me on for another call for that. Freaking (laughs) meta-ethics. Wait, do do I need
0: another degree
6: in order to understand that? You do. Yeah.
2: Okay. Meta-ethics.
0: Wow. Stick around for more science rules after this.
2: Science Rules is back. Charles. Charles, are you out there?
5: Science Rules to Charles. Hi. Where,
2: are you, ca- where are you calling um, from, Charles?
7: Uh, Long Island, New York.
5: Ah, uh, yes. Uh, which town of Long Island?
7: Uh, currently, I'm at Stony Brook University, but I am uh, I live in Port Jeff.
2: Okay. Thank you for... just <laughs> Uh, okay, never mind. The New Yorkers love the New York. That's all. So, uh, Charles, go ahead with your question.
7: Sure. Uh, so, my question was, uh, since I know y'all were kind of talking about uh, the sort of uh, implications on uh, birth, and I was, I was kind of curious to what extent, because I know, I mean, if you look at the statistics, and we're talking about, you know, a, a hotter more populated world and, and also just like climate change in general, you're looking at a lot of emissions from corporations and a lot of governments that don't necessarily, you know, institutionalize uh, regulation that, that prevents that sort of stuff. So I guess my question is, like, to what extent do you think this stuff kind of comes into the personal responsibility side of things? And to what extent do you think uh, there are policy changes that that need to be enacted?
6: Uh, I love this question because if nobody well else Well done Charles. Yeah, if nobody else brings it up, you, you we have to. And this is, he He very kindly formed it as a genuine question, but it's usually used as a weapon against the sort of view that I'm talking about. You just want to get beat on. And so there's this view among the, the left out there who are very progressive on things like climate change that anyone like me who wants to talk about individual responsibility, like we're really a big part of the problem. Like this is the old Al Gore, you can change a light bulb and save the world sort of mentality. And it's letting Exxon off the hook, right? It's letting all of the major corporations and the governments who aren't doing anything and who bear the real responsibility responsibility off the hook. So it's a super important thing to say that I am not talking about saving the world through individual action. I'm talking about we have to do it all, right? So we have to do the policy. We have to do the government work. We have to change corporations. We have to do the high level restrictions because that is what will make the difference. But here's the question that an ethicist in particular- When you might say
2: be, restrictions, you mean regulations? so
6: Regulations and restrictions. I mean, restrictions in the sense that we have to leave a bunch of oil in the ground. Oh, like, good. Just, okay. Yeah, yes. Okay. So, actual restrictions. <laughs> um, but yeah, so as an ethicist, I want to say all that's true. And I still have this question How do I live a decent life in the world in which I find myself? And there seems to be, to me, to be something deeply true about the fact that if I fly across the Atlantic for the sake of a good meal in Paris and then fly back home, I've done something morally objectionable, given the limited resource that I've just squandered. And it's not because I am operating on the But the plane
2: was going there anyway, man.
6: (laughs) (laughs) The plane was going there anyway. And I took one of those seats, unless I flew my private jet, of course.
5: Yeah, and when Uh, I ate the steak, it was already in the restaurant in the kitchen. It wasn't like I was,
6: like, killing the cow personally. Yeah, go (laughs) ahead. So. Yeah, so we're getting it all on the table. Yeah, so people feel powerless. And there are two separable sorts of concerns here. One is that people feel powerless, and so um, you have this kind of impotence objection. Like, "My, my actions aren't doing anything. Stop talking to me, man. And then there's this kind of further critique that, like, you neoliberal like, dog, you're just letting the corporations off the hook and focusing on the individual. And ev- I don't even know what all the criticisms mean when people call me these names. But there's something very bad about asking people to justify their behavior when it's the big corporations who are doing the bad I can days. tell you there, there's a lot of that on Twitter right now. I'm on Twitter
5: frequently, and I hear that argument all the time. Yeah, yeah, me too.
6: So, okay,
2: I appreciate you guys listening to Twitter, but these uh, are—Charles has hit the nail on the head. Uh, Do we have—Charles, do you have an opinion about this? Uh,
7: I'm probably one of the people on Twitter. I mean, I'm not rude (laughs) about it, but I am one of the people on Twitter who's like, you know, uh, this is—
2: You're a bunch of hypocrites. Am I—
7: yeah, this is neoliberal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, I, definitely hear the the personal res- responsibility angle, and I think, I think talking about it, and I think shows like this are important so that well, people know, like, these are the things that I can do to, to help.
5: Well, hold on, Charles. I, I'm guessing you're a student at uh, at Stony Brooks that what you said. Yeah, I'm in uh, journalism. I mean, do you feel like you operate at both levels? Do you do Do you watch things in your own life, but you're also do you consider yourself an activist?
7: Um. I'm more active in, like, LGBTQ plus stuff, but, like, you know, when, when it's possible, I try to get involved or collaborate with, with folks who are more sort of on the environmental and, and uh, side of things.
2: So here's the thing that fascinates me about LGBTQ issues, and thank you for calling, Charles, is things change so fast. 10, 15 years ago, Charles, sounds like you're a college student when you were a little kid. Yeah. Uh People, there was no way we'll never have marriage between two men. However you want to couch the issue.
5: Oh, yeah. And gay marriage was the sort of lightning rod issue yeah. that, that— You're you know, on it this like side you could, you could that nev- side. And you could never—we were never going to be it able to find consensus evil. on that. It
2: was dogs and cats. But then, seven or eight years, boom, everything changed. And so, Charles, do you feel—you're an activist in this area, and I'm just looking for an analog— do you feel there's anything analogous to what you're going through as an activist in LGBTQ issues versus or along with environmental issues? I'm just asking your opinion, Charles.
7: I think the the real thing right now is, is trans rights um, because it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of this issue where there are a lot of people kind of all around both, you know, on the left and the right who are like, I don't want. You know, this is just, I'm just kind of verbatim saying some of the sort of uh, dialogue that I hear, like, oh, I don't want men in my women's bathroom, like, that sort of stuff, and it's like, to what extent do we show up at, like, you know, the political level and be like, hey, like, we need policy, and to what extent are we, like, there is something deeply wrong with our culture where we have these sorts of assumptions about other people and are, like, so involved in other people's business, and it's like... To what level is that personal responsibility and to what level is that politics?
5: So, Charles, I think you touched on something that, you know, social norms, kind of what, what we perceive as being, uh, you know, normal, reasonable, acceptable behavior is very changeable. Um, and I think in the case of, uh, you know, of, of gay rights and gay marriage, the way we saw it depicted in pop culture changed. Uh, you know, Travis, could that happen with environmental issues as well? That if we see a different treatment of the environment in our in pop culture, that people's attitudes could change
6: there as well? This is really part of my response to the impotence objection that, you know, you're not really doing anything, um, you're letting the corporations off the hook. Well, we have to hold the corporations accountable, but well, we Here's also-
2: the thing! Corporations are made of people! Yes. Yeah. they are people in corporations. They're not just this thing <laughs> that, that does the thing on its own, this enormous amoeba absorbing resources. For corporations, it's people! And so uh, governments are made of people! So we uh this gets into my top down uh balance between uh what's possible and what uh needs to be regulated. And this idea that regulations are bad, I think is just uh
6: inherently flawed. Well, just like corporations are people, regulations are people, regulations are our values. Well, and they're responding to people too, right? Yeah. It's not it's not like they exist in this ethereal plane that is untouchable. And so one of the things that someone like me might be really concerned with is like culture change. You talk to people and you convince them of things and you form values and communities and you march in the street, millions of people strong and people see that and it matters. And then politicians have to take that into account if they want to be reelected. Like people do in fact matter, right? And so it's not like the, there's corporations, regulations that exist way up in the sky and then the people in the bottom and there the two, two shall meet, right? We have to do all the things.
2: I would like to go to Michael. Michael, are you out there? Yes. And what yes. is your question?
3: Um, you know, listening to your conversation about ethics, um, I guess I grew up in a Midwestern house in Kansas, uh, and um, I was taught that ethics and morals were taught from the church, and the state is there to provide policy um, that isn't related to, necessarily to uh, ethic, a set of ethics, because, you know, someone else may have some different beliefs uh, from another church or a, a synagogue or a, a mosque or wherever. Um, so I, I, my question is more of where do you draw the line in terms of ethics and teaching ethics, and then backing up in, in terms of which, how far should the government be going uh, down that uh, policy road.
2: So what's so what's an example of a policy that has an ethical implication or an ethic that has a policy implication? But can you think of uh, of an example?
3: Well, I mean, actually, I, the good examples um, are probably related to like don't murder people.
2: Don't murder um, is we can agree. Most people agree don't murder people. I'm on board uh, under most circumstances. Okay. That's right. <laughs>
3: But we still have uh, extremist groups that believe that that's not necessarily so.
2: Uh, we mean that, that justifying war and so on.
3: Uh, yeah, justifying war or extreme actions that cause violence, or in the case of loss of life. So you have uh, the most obvious, even the most obvious case, where you have a majority of people saying, "Yes, let's not murder other people." There are a certain percentage of the population who have deep rooted beliefs that are not that. So
2: it's OK to bomb people you don't know, for example.
3: Yeah. Or, you know, in, this, in so making uh, the education of ethics is, is more of what I'm asking. Like, how do you teach someone ethics, a set of ethics? There like, you go. Usually that's the responsibility of 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 spiritual of the leaders, church. Yeah. Okay. Of, of this the is church. hey, and, that's and, and, Michael, and now That's cool. And now we're and now we're talking about making policies to enforce a certain set of ethics that maybe certain groups of people don't actually have within certain governments.
2: Michael, USA. Do you have do you have uh, something that other that's, governments across the world? Michael, do you have something that's bugging you? Uh, something you learned in church and accepted in church, that you feel the in this case as a Kansan, you feel that the U.S. government is not. Uh, carrying through on, or something the government's imposing on you that the church would be against.
3: No, I, I'm. You're thinking
2: I'm just, big, uh, just jamming.
3: I'm, I'm, I'm thinking big, thinking practical. It's a real honor to speak with you.
2: <laughs> That's cool, but I, I, I here's the example: you and,
3: you and Dr. Tyson all the time on the on the podcast. But uh, I just, I, I think I'd be interested to hear um, your guests who who is who's a bioethics. You said you're... you're is yes,
5: he's he a bioethicist.
3: So, so how do you, in your in your best consulting way, advise people in the government or other businesses? How do you tell them this is the right way? Do you like say, hey, write down all the things you think are important in terms of your ethics, and I'll see if they match mine, and then I'm going to. Give you advice, or do you say, "Let me see your list first, and then I can give you the best advice"? (laughs) That's
5: a great question. How do you 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 described it
6: as a practical ethics? How do you put it into practice? Yeah, no, this is this is like the best setup anyone could ask for. He's like, "How do you teach ethics?" And I'm like, "That's what I do for a living, my man." How do
2: you teach (laughs) ethics? Thank (laughs) you, Michael. Thanks for your call. How do you teach ethics, Travis?
6: Yeah, so you know there are a couple of different things you could do, and one would rhyme more with his Kansan upbringing, where you get ethics from the church. And so I tell, especially my undergrads, where I have a whole semester, and it's okay if we end, you know, with wonder and not having any answers. And I tell them, like, here's one of our jobs. I want you to think about what, what you think is right. And I'm going to give you an entire intellectual history and set of traditions. People have thought big thoughts on this, and you can figure out which one works with you. And then you can tell me, and I'll beat, beat against it. And I'll give you some answers, and you can beat against it. And it's this wonderful exercise. But... It's not all that practical for, say, public policy guidance, right? Like, if I help my student and uh, he's like, great, you help me figure out that utilitarianism is true, says him. Um, Oh,
2: yeah, utilitarianism.
6: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Util-
2: the, if I may, what's utilitarianism? Yeah,
6: so utilitarianism is just one of the kind of classical moral theories that says the right action is the one that produces the greatest balance of happiness over unhappiness. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and so it, a lot of people find it very plausible on its face, and then it runs into deep philosophical problems. And so it's a fun philosophical exercise to think through it.
3: Well, America was founded on the pursuit of happiness,
6: It was founded on the pursuit of happiness, that language, right? But it turns out if you try to promote aggregate happiness as a utilitarian, you might do really terrible things. You might hang an innocent person to quell a huge mob, right? Mm. Uh, You might enslave a small proportion to make everyone else happy.
2: Ending up with a sense of wonder is not enough when you're trying to write laws.
6: When you're trying to do something like policy, yeah. yeah. And so one of the questions Michael asked was, you know, is it okay to have policy that has ethics in it? So here's a secret that I think I've discovered: all policy has ethics in it. If do, we, do, 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 do. Oh, maybe <laughs> yes. it's this
2: one. Yeah. we want this one.
6: Yeah. Yes, <laughs> now we're talking. You know, <laughs> it goes, so on, it goes on, on, on. It, it goes on a lot longer than long. you'd think. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot, lot of theremin there. To, it's a lot of theremin. To, but that said. So if you care enough as a society to write something down in policy, it probably has implications for health and well-being and happiness and rights and protections of individuals. That's all ethics stuff, right? So we have entire policy intervention suites dedicated to public health promotion. Public health is deeply, deeply ethics, right? It's about promoting the wellness of an aggregate population. So here's a really important question. Whose wellness counts most? How do we prioritize? Like all that stuff isn't settled by science. Is settled by figuring out, like, what are the correct principles that operate over society? So we have to do ethics is secret number one, because policies shot through with it. And so then Michael's question is super live. How do we do it in a way that's not massively offensive to individuals who hold a very strong view deeply to their core? And... Uh, Who's to say who's right? Who's to say who's right? And so in a deeply pluralistic society, here's what I tell my graduate students now. So you kind of left.
2: Because the the undergrads, they can't think this big. (laughs) But if they listen to this podcast,
6: (laughs) cruise right to the top. That's right. No, my my undergrads, like I don't have responsibilities to turn them into little bioethicists. But my graduate students, I'm going to help them advise policy and that sort of thing. And so one of the things we talk about right away is... If you're working in a deeply pluralistic society, you can't come in and say, okay, I, as a smart, philosophy tra- philosophy-trained person, know that utilitarianism is true. So I figured out in this instance the correct policy is X.
2: Can a clergy person do that?
6: Well, and so if a clergy person does that, the same sort of thing's going to happen. what I mean, yeah. yeah like,
2: what's the difference?
6: Yeah, everybody is going to say, well, you know, who are you, dude? Yeah. But if you come in and say, look, all of us are invested in this whether or not we open this, uh, you know, health promotion site, whether or not we enact climate policies, like this matters for all of us. All of us uh, are going to live long enough to see this. We're invested in the future. Some of us has, have kids and grandkids, wellness, health, you know, the well-being of our nation, the rights of individuals. This stuff is at stake. Now, where can we find some overlapping consensus? Where can we find enough agreement to actually enact policy that is the right policy instead of just one among many that we like through a dart at right so there we go that's the best i can do it
2: michael you've taken us down a fabulous road here uh nicely done thanks for uh, chiming in from uh from uh well uh, originally from kansas and then from texas
5: from houston texas
2: yeah so uh yeah thank you some of my best friends as they say so uh carry on
0: science rules will be right back Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You're listening to Science Rules.
2: Along this line, motivating people, getting people to participate in policymaking, it brings me uh, to seek to lo- seek out. Brooks. Brooks, are you out there? Brooks?
5: Hello? Is there a Brooks? Is yeah. there is there a Brooks on the
2: podcast? Ah, Brooks. Where are you yes, calling from? Welcome to Science Rules. Mm-hmm.
5: Kansas City, Kansas. Uh,
2: uh, right next uh, to the, K. Uh, the the, 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 the uh, right side of the river. <laughs> Well, the
5: west side. Yes, but (laughs) but the correct side of the river. The
2: left side, left (laughs) side of the river. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, anyway, what's your uh, what's your comment? Your question.
3: So, going off the lines of morality and ethics of what we were just talking about, we had a major conversation about this in my environmental health class for my master's of public health degree, and it's about reaching the most. I guess, immovable of people, kind of like the old adage goes, it's like the impossible force versus the immovable object. I feel like the immovable object just still resides as a personality for so many people in rural demographics around this area. I mean, for example, my parents had their HVAC system fixed last winter. And the first thing the guy says as he's coming down into our basement, says i don't believe in climate change it's still freezing cold outside and it's it's for me it's curious about from a sociological perspective how we write policy to really impact as many people and and to make it and to influence as many people as possible to get people to really understand and adhere to the real issues before it becomes frivolous
2: So, in other words, you're talking about climate change. Uh, Brooks, you're talking about climate change.
3: Well, anything. Anything. Environmental health policy change. Uh, It can be applied to so many things. Clean air regulation. Anything.
2: So, the guy that I always found so troubling, I still do, is Senator Inhofe from neighboring Oklahoma. Who apparently, Mm -hmm. I mean, you watch the guy talk. He apparently cannot make the connection between billions of light bulbs uh, being changed to reduce their consumption by a factor of 15 and using less electricity. And that would mean uh, less of an effect on uh, the the less greenhouse gas to be produced by fossil fuel burning electric power plants. Apparently, that's what he can't. Get I mean, I don't know if it's really – Well, there, there's, a guy, a, there's, an, there's but, an
5: Upton Sinclair quote that people throw around a lot that it's very hard yeah, to get a man to understand something when his income depends mm, on him not understanding yeah, it. Yeah.
2: And so along this line, cool. um, along this line, I think when you live in rural areas – now, you're in the big city of Kansas City. I have a lot of people in that area, a lot of family. But when you're in the rural areas where people are serious business farmers, ag- industrial agriculture – Everybody, your neighbors are so far away from you that it just doesn't seem possible that humans could be affecting the climate of a whole planet. Whereas if you're in Bangkok, Thailand, it's pretty clear that people are, or Beijing, it's pretty obvious that people are affecting the climate of a whole planet. So is there anything, is, uh, what'd you say, Brooks?
3: In Shanghai, too. In Shanghai,
2: yeah, yeah. So it's, have you been there?
3: Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, so it changes your
2: perspective. yeah. Yeah, so it changes your perspective, which gets into one of my favorite subjects, everybody, and that would be a national service. If everyone had to participate in some way, required by law to take the one thing we cannot get more of, time, and work together on something for the better, for the national or the international good, would we feel differently? This is to say, Travis. Dr. Reeder, do people's experiences affect them enough to have changes in their ethics, change their morals, change their perception of what's right and wrong?
6: I mean, maybe it's the only thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's most of my career can be summed up by um, investigating deeply held moral beliefs that are only really You're really only capable of fully investigating when you're put in a situation where experience reveals something to you. So
2: what was your experience that put you in this situation that you became a bioethicist? Hey, this is a great question, Brooks. Hang on. Yeah, it's great. Go for
6: it. Um, Well, I mean— so kind of staged, but basically life experience just kind of continuously gave me new projects. And so I have very, very smart friends who are, you know, getting tenure at world-class institutions, just writing about stuff that they're curious about. They're just very smart and they solve problems and they publish papers and it's it's really impressive. Yeah,
2: Corey, why don't you do that?
6: <laughs> I do that in my mind. Does that count? If I don't actually put it out into the world, is it still there? Anyway, go ahead. There's, there's, totally. there's a, there's a philosophical question. A
2: joke. Go for it. So Travis, go ahead.
6: Uh, and, and what it became very clear to me early on that I was going to do is just work on whatever, like, really felt important to me personally. And so I left my Ph.D. program, which I wrote a really abstract dissertation and Which was brilliant. I'm sure. Like, everyone who's read it thinks it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Both people? <laughs> Both people. <laughs> yes. So go you, ahead. you and your mom? And me and my <laughs> mom. Exactly, yeah.
2: And your advisor.
6: Yes. Yeah. Um, hopes. But— But yeah, as soon as I started thinking about bioethics, the most important thing that I was really concerned with was whether or not I was going to have a kid. And I was like desperately concerned with this because I was thinking constantly about what it would mean to a kid to bring them into the world, what it would mean to the world to bring them into the world. And I literally spent like four years doing scholarship on this thing that was so striking to me. Uh, And that was my entire first project in ethics. And I worked on that right up until the moment I got hit by a van. And when I got hit by a van, I got my foot blown apart, and they put me on opioids for months, and I experienced what it was like to form profound dependency. And I came out of that, and I was like, oh, man, I really enjoyed working on all this stuff about making babies, but now I've learned something really amazing about um, amazing and horrible about what these drugs can do to people. And that's all I've done for the last four years. So I have these very weird like projects that don't look like they're connected in any way, but the way in which they're connected is that you can uh, learn something really valuable when it matters to you personally, and you take that experience and you infuse your scholarship with it. And that's basically what I do as an ethicist now.
2: Well, that's that's not bad. Brooks, uh, nicely done. So with that said, to answer Brooks's or to address Brooks's question one more click, how do we write policies that change people's uh, outlooks, is it by giving them an experience? Does it, to do people, do all our policymakers have to think about it for four years, as you did, <laughs> or a total of eight for these two projects?
6: Yeah, well, and hopefully, you know, they don't all have to, like, have catastrophic surgery to figure out stuff on drugs, or, you know. No,
2: well, that's what I mean.
6: <laughs> yeah. So,
5: or, but, but people or, do connect through through stories exactly. and through life experiences, they don't necessarily have to go through the full trauma, but... You know, how do you connect to people's humanity
6: that way? Yeah, so you, you, know, you find the people who are doing great work on climate change, and they, they know the data, they know the science, at least if they're doing it well, they do, but they're also telling stories. And the stories matter so much. And what I found is that the same thing is true in the drug policy space. If you only talk about epidemiology, the epidemiologists care a lot and the, nobody else the, uh,
2: the um, actuarial tables, yeah, the insurance yeah. companies yeah. tables. Exactly, who's
6: dying? How many
2: and where? So, Brooks, Brooks, you're in environmental uh, education, or you're in wh- what well, do
3: you do? Uh, public health master's degree. I'm looking to go on to community health education Ph.D. for type one diabetics. But this was a uh, this was a supplemental class. But, did
2: you? Did you, you know, hold it? So I do you have experience different with? Do you have experience with type one diabetes?
6: Yeah, type one myself.
2: Yeah, and so you. This is why you want to tell the story,
6: exactly. So we're talking about you know experience and vicarious experience or stories and the the powerful role that they can play. And one of the things that I think is really interesting as an ethicist is that you also have an ethics of this sort of advocacy, right? Because with great power comes great responsibility. To paraphrase Spider Man, um, but yeah, yeah. So the the idea here is like you. If you're using stories to try to compel policymakers to fix something that you think needs fixing, Well, you can also weaponize stories for bad ends, right? You can focus only on the story of the guy who's losing his farm because the climate change policies (laughs) affected him in some way and ignore all the stories of the people whose lives are being devastated by wildfires and hurricanes, et cetera. And so if you don't locate the story in a broader context of evidence base and science and data, you can really manipulate people that way. So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we have the power. Yeah, so we have to do it right.
2: So this is a great call. Thank you, thank you, Brooks. Carry on. Thank you. Oh my! Oh my!
5: Corey, uh, from a from a purely moral ethical standpoint, I think it's time for the lightning round. The lightning
2: round. Just be, Are out, of, out of
5: consideration for our listeners and to promote the greater good.
2: Uh, so Dr. Reader, are you ready for the lightning round? I, I guess. let's see. Okay, what about the trolley problem? The trolley's going down the track. On one side, there are five people tied to the track. If you throw the switch, there's you go down the the other fork of the track and there's only one person tied. Do you stand up and throw the switch? It's, uh, and so you only kill one person deliberately. You deliberately killed one person, or do you allow tracks take their course and kill five people with you taking no action?
6: Throw the switch, okay. Throw the Excellent. switch. There yeah, you go.
2: Because you're choosing uh, the the lesser of evils. Yeah. All right. Uh, Oregon harvesting. Do you kill one person to save five people? Nope. Prisoner's dilemma. Dilemma, do you confess you're both in prison and the man, the, the authorities are trying to get the story out of you, do you rat out on the other guy or not?
6: <laughs> uh, is that accurate? Did I do, to make it too short? No, no, no. Yeah, you did it. You did it. Um, so it's perfectly rational to always rat, which is the problem. Um, but if you've made a promise to the other person that you're going to keep your trap shut, then you should keep it. And both of you should keep it. And you're probably going to be a sucker and the other guy's going to confess and you're going to go to jail for a long time. But if you've made a promise, you should keep it.
2: If I made, no, damn.
6: Nobody said it's easy to
2: live a moral life. That's uh, right. Nobody, no. <laughs> did anybody say that? And if he did or she, would that moral? Now, is it more important to recycle or to donate to a political campaign?
6: Depends on the political campaign and where you live. But if you are living somewhere where your donation has a real chance of making a difference in the right direction, absolutely donate to the political campaign. I can't come up with a scenario in which that would come at the cost of recycling. Like, look, you should do both. But if you had to choose because some madman was putting it to you, uh, if you're in the right state and the right district, donate to the political cause. You
2: don't even have to be in the right state and the right district. You can donate to people in other states. And I I recommend it strongly. Uh, What is one thing— Everyone should do to live a more ethical life.
6: Actually try to think about the reasons on which they're acting. Oh my God, that sounds blissful. So here's (laughs) what I think,
2: if I may offer this one thing you can do to lead a more ethical life. Let's hear it. Put yourself in the other guy's position. If You can think uh, that you would be the guy getting the organ taken out of your body or receiving the organ or getting in the motorcycle wreck. But if you could put yourself... In the other person's position as you ponder the questions, I think we would all be a little better off. Dr. Uh, Travis Reeder, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thanks a lot. This has been
6: fantastic. Well, thanks for having me. This has been an absolute delight.
2: I'm Bill Nye.
6: I am Corey S. Powell.
2: And remember, when it comes to the ethical part of our universe, science science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show so they, too, can listen. Turn it up loud! Oh, thank you. Be sure to look at uh, my socials, as the kids call it. Uh, for when to call into a show i'm at bill nye on everything on the booking of face on the tweeting on the uh, the gram meanwhile if you'd like to leave us a voicemail you may remember that technology give us a call at 201 472 201 472 to leave us a voice message Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell. Yo. With extra production from Lisa Wang, who also screens your phone calls. Our engineer today is Casey Halford, who you may recognize that name. He's also the guy who mixes this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer of Stitcher. And at Stitcher... Science rules.
0: Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.